Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom and I'm here with John Waters. Not the director you may be thinking of if you're the Americans, but a journalist from Ireland. Uh, thank you for taking the time today, John. Hi, Stefan. Pleasure. Can you tell uh, my audience a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm actually, a, I regard myself as an ex, a recovering journalist. I was a journalist in the Irish Times for 24 years. I left there uh, about five years ago after a kind of a, a, a particular uh, series of events, which I've detailed in a book I've just bought out, which I won't plug, but it's there to be nah, found. give us a title. Give us a title. It's called, okay, well, here's one you might get, Stefan, as a man from Athlone. Uh, it's called Give Us Back the Bad Roads. And it's, <laughs> right. You get it? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, can we have our country back as it was when you arrived and uh, just you, there's the airport, okay, type of thing. Right. And uh, so... Um, uh, so I was a journalist with him for, for, for 25 years. I've written 10 books, about various, mainly about Ireland, it has to be said, different kinds of aspects of Ireland and, you know, uh, collections of this and that. And I've written plays and uh, um, I've written songs. Uh, I, I represented my country as a songwriter in the Eurovision Song Contest. I don't know if you've heard of that over there. Uh, but we came last, and that's, you know, but I'm kind of proud about that now because everybody thinks it's a very uncool contest. So I suppose if it's that uncool, it must be quite hip to come last in it. Well, that's no, but here's the funny thing, right? So if you're a runner and you come last in the Olympics, you're still in the Olympics. So you're right. still a lot better than most others. So coming last in, among the first is, is great. Yeah, it's quite painful, though. You know, the, the funny thing about that, Stefan, is, you know, uh, you sit on the hotel bedroom in the bed in the morning, and you're trying to piece together how actually you first of all got into the Eurovision. How did that happen? And then how did you actually come last? I mean, that seems impossible. It's like it's 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 like beyond nightmare. But it, with with distance, it's a good few years ago now. So I'm I'm kind of recovering from that also. Right, right. So I did a video on Ireland 2040. Uh, it's cruising up around 600,000 views and downloads. I assume a fair amount from Ireland. And from what I've heard, so. the rumble through the grapevine is it seems to have provoked a fair amount of discussion and, and back and forth uh, in Ireland, which, you know, is always a good thing. Uh, more discussion, particularly about fairly irreversible changes like demographic replacement. You know, it seems like a topic that's well worth bringing up from time to time. And my time in Ireland has taught me just how much the Irish like to argue. So how has the video been received? What are the conversations that you've heard occurring? Okay, well, uh, first of all, you can I can tell you that the national media didn't mention it at all, mm. and that would be entirely predictable. Irish media don't report anything that's important. Don't talk about. Don't permit people to talk about anything that's important. That's and that goes for newspapers, radio stations, television stations. They're there to keep the lid on any possibility of a conversation about anything important. Um, but I did hear a couple of discussions on local radio, which were quite, uh, you know, uh, vibrant. And uh, I heard an awful lot of references to it in the various places I've been going around in the last uh, couple of weeks since you put it, put it up. Um, just people at different kinds of meetings and in, this, you know, cafes and all over the place, really. Just this is pure anecdotal stuff. But I actually tend to go by that because I get the sense that if people are telling me about stuff, they're telling other people as well. And it's the same things are happening all over the country. So on that basis, I would say it actually hit the spot. I think, you know, and that doesn't surprise me because I watched it and it was like so, so 
absolutely graphic in its detail and in its directiveness in terms of the gravity of the issue and, and, and the urgency of what we face. And there has been nothing like that in the Irish media, uh, the mainstream media whatsoever, like even on, at any level. Uh, it's as if this question doesn't arise. It's as if it's uh, verboten to speak about it. And, and so it is uh, for most people. Well, and the terrible thing about this is not only what it reveals about the media as gatekeepers of any valuable conversation, but I would submit that there's no bigger question to the continuation of a particular country, a culture, a history, a civilization than the people who inhabit it. And certainly in the West as a whole, really since the 1960s, there has been this desperate pushback against mass migration, particularly from the third world, because it has never been tried before, where you've had massive amounts of diversity, multiculturalism, and just look at the Middle East, look at Yugoslavia, look at other places, it's generally a disaster. And the people should be asked, the people who built the country, the people who pay the taxes, the people who raise the children in the country should be asked if they want it. And resolutely, to a man, the mainstream media is not only not having that conversation, but anyone who tries to bring up issues around that conversation is almost immediately branded a white supremacist, a racist, a Nazi, and so on. So it is a terrible betrayal of an entire culture, history, and civilization to not only fail to present this information, but to attack anybody who dares bring it up. That's right. And then, you know, that's the, the, the whole thing is that, you know, does it not occur to people in this industry uh, that what they're doing is actually contrary to the very basis of their professions and of their, their function, their vocations in, in society. At the, you know, the fourth estate, its role is to provide society with the capacity to have a conversation about the important questions facing it. And as you say, they not just fail to do that themselves, but they actually act as a police force to prevent other people, insofar as they can, from speaking about it. And they, they're okay with that. You know, all journalists, nobody within the journalistic fraternity in Ireland is raising a fuss about that and saying, hey, why aren't we covering this? Uh, this is actually bizarre. I mean, because no matter whether you cover it, you know, uh, critically or, 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 or investigatively or however you do it, you at least have the, the, the responsibility to present on a daily basis the facts to the people. Now, the 2040 uh, um, thing that you talked about, you know, this, this uh, manifesto for the next phase of Irish life that the government published last September, I mean, there was a massive controversy in, in, at the time, which erupted. I don't know to what extent it was accidentally but it emerged after the fact, when that, that was published, that the newspapers uh, had been paid uh, by the government to present those facts as though it were actually advertising, except not named, not, not indicated as advertising. In other words, they were presenting uh, what was in effect advertorial as news. And of course, that, that advertorial, that news, whatever you would call it, was totally devoid of any critical analysis or any even deep analysis that would have indicated to people the various implications of it, because it wasn't immediately obvious. Some of the things that you highlighted in your statistics and in your presentation, you know, like things like the, the, the fertility rates, the relative fertility rates, for example, that's just off the top of my head, between the indigenous population here in Ireland and the people who will be coming in is a red flag for people to say, oh, there's something here that we need to look at. We need to do some sums around this, which is the function of journalism. None of this happened. And so people actually get the sense that, oh, nothing to see here, uh, nothing to concern us. You know, 
except or, where they or have that it's a little tremor. Right, and that, that's one of the fear. things I really wanted to push back was this weird inevitability. Well, there's just going to be all these extra people in Ireland. We've got to find some way to, to handle this. And it's like, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, it's, it's like you're driving down the road with your wife and you say, well, you know, inevitably we're going to end up with 16 hitchhikers. So, you know, we've just got to make some room. We've got to, we've got to get some lunch. We've got to figure things out. We've got to put some kids yeah. on the roof. And it's like, wait a minute, isn't it a choice to stop and pick up it? Like, how is it inevitable that you end up with 16 hitchhikers in the car? But there's this weird, almost like it's physics, you know, like you age, your hair thins, and then a million people come into your tiny island. And it's like, yeah, eh. yeah. And, and you see, I, I, to tease this out, you know, in the, in the broader European context, you know, what's actually going on here is, you know, of course, you know, the model of human existence that has been pursued in the, within the confines of the European Union is so inimical to the quality of human life that, uh, and the quality of our leadership has been so poor that actually these this influx into Europe has occurred because European politicians got it into their head that they could actually offset or camouflage the consequences of their inadequate leadership, and indeed, even more specifically, their pilfering of the pension resources, the resources of the people, by actually allowing all of these people in, in order to create a new workforce, which would then theoretically uh, pay taxes, which would then keep the older people, of the aging population of Europe, in the comfort to which we had become accustomed for the rest of our lives. Now, Anybody who buys into that is, is slightly crazy, I would have said. How that relates to Ireland is a little bit more subtle because I don't think uh, our politicians even get to thinking that much. They just do what they're told. And they were facing a problem, which was that the leaders of Europe, the main, particularly uh, Angela Merkel and, and uh, Macron in, in France, uh, had a problem because they brought all these people in and now they had a huge problem in, in that people, their own people were saying, what? What's going on? So they have to offload these people. And of course, the function of Irish politicians is to simply do what they're told when they're told. And that's kind of where that's coming from, partly, in part. There's, there's other aspects of it as well. But you see, there's a context here which is quite bizarre. Um, I'm 63 years old. I was born in 1955. And that, that tells you that like since I was born there have been three major outfluxes of Irish people three hemorrhages of the Irish population in the 1950s which continued right into the 1960s almost to the, to the end of that decade uh, the 1980s again and from 2008 to I would say it's still going on actually in, in to an extent so here is a country which is in, has been incapable for the duration of its independence, which is now almost 100 years, of sustaining its own pop small population uh, within itself. It has to periodically allow the best and the brightest of particular generations to be scattered to the four winds without compunction, without any great grief. I've actually remember a time way back in, in the 1980s when this was happening and the Deputy Prime Minister, the Tornish at the time, I think he was, Brian Lenehan, a very amiable man, said, you know, in reaction to people complaining about this new wave of emigration after the alleged booms of the, the late 60s and 70s, he said, oh, we can't all expect to live on one small island. 
There's too many people. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Not even the Irish people. Now, you know, uh, like 10 years ago, it just started again. It's not as if like this is an historical reality. This is a continuing reality. Uh, we're still hemorrhaging our people. And only the other day, I think it was two days ago, there was a demonstration in, in Sydney in Australia of nurses, uh, Irish nurses, who have been living there, having emigrated there, pleading to come home. They stood on the steps of Sydney Opera House and with a big sign saying, you know, asking their country to, is it possible to come back? And the reason they can't come back here is because they can't live on the wages that are available to nurses in Ireland now. And that's probably due to the fact that the many of the nurses here come from the Philippines and they're prepared to work for significantly less than Irish nurses are able to live on. That's okay, well, let's pause there for a sec, because this issue is really frustrating to anybody who understands basic math and demographics. If there's a labor shortage in Ireland and there's a huge diaspora of Irish people, I can't even imagine how many millions around the world, some percentage of them, like the nurses in Australia, would like to come home. So mm -hmm. if there's money to lavish on migrants from the third world, if there's money to lavish on people from Somalia and, and other places in Africa, and if there's all of this money to lavish on the population, why wouldn't you lavish it to incent people to come back from the Irish diaspora? Because then you get cultural continuity, you get the history, you get uh, no less demographic and racial tension and all that, and you get immediate workers who speak English, who know the history, who are well-educated, uh, who understand the culture. You can plug them right in, get them to work right away, and have them be very productive. Why is that not being pursued? And I, I, I fear the answer is very sinister. Well, it, it, it is sinister, but it's actually quite simple as well. It, it, what it is is simply that Irish politicians no longer, to the extent that they did, I think they did at one time, my memory tells me somewhere back in the midst of time, Irish politicians actually represented the Irish people. That has ceased, for certain. And it certainly has ceased in the past decade, after the crisis of the economic crisis of, the, of 2008, followed by the uh, reoccupation of Ireland in 2010 by the Troika uh, of the, the IMF, World Bank and European Commission, which came in basically to tell us how to run our country and, uh, you know, uh, stomped around the streets of Dublin showing themselves off. Um, I think there's a sense that Ireland, the Irish polit political elite, have nothing to say to the question of the welfare of the Irish people. They're not interested in it. It's not on their agenda. Their agenda is to keep their jobs, to continue working as politicians for as long as they can and build up their, their own personal pension pots so that they can get away when the going gets rough. And that's essentially what this is at the back of this. I think, you know, when you actually drill right down into it, you see there's a cadre of politicians now who are really unsuited to the, to the function of le leadership at all, in any shape. I think this is a general tendency anyway in the world, certainly in Europe. And you can see it in, in Britain, for example, in the Brexit negotiations, all that stuff. You can see that these people, none of them, even, whether they're on the leave or the remain side, none of them seem to be capable of actually getting up on a Monday morning and saying, I'm going to run the United Kingdom this week without any instruction or assistance from anybody outside this country. And the same is true of Irish politicians. They just have no capacity to do anything other than carry messages back from their overlords in Europe and in the corporate uh, in, in organizations here in Ireland, who are in effect, all of these are a kind of a coalition, EU, UN, 
corporate, uh, uh, particularly high, big tech companies. They're the real government of Ireland, and the politicians are simply their uh, factorums. They're 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 just they're just really uh, uh, messenger boys for um, uh, people who hold the real power and the real control of the Irish economy and the and Irish society. Okay, so um, let, let me ask you this, because I've, I've heard this theory before that you're going to import a third world workforce to prop up the boomers who are retiring. But it's fairly obvious to everyone, isn't it, John, that there's no money in the retirement funds, that the supposed retirement funds that were built up during the prime working years of the boomers well, there's just a bun bunch of dusty IOUs and, and maybe some bonds, yeah. and so there's no money there. So no, no, no. isn't it, I mean, it's almost like if, so if I were a politician and I were to say, okay, well, I've got this aging population, there's no money to pay for them. The money was stolen and everybody knew that the money was stolen. Everybody knew that there was no big lockbox with your retirement funds in it, that there was just being pillaged for the general vote buying spree of late edge democracy. So wouldn't yeah. you go to the, I mean, as a politician, you have a choice. You can say, well, I can pretend that there's this third world solution. Or I can go to the people and I can say, hey, I'm, you don't shoot the messenger, but there's no money. There's no money yeah. here. And it's unfair to pillage the young to pay for what has been the richest generation in the history of the world's retirement. Because the young weren't even born when all this stuff was voted in. And the young didn't have any power or control when the politicians were raiding. And nobody raised much of a fuss. And, you know, actions have consequences. You, people say, well, I paid into the system. It's like, so? Uh, so what? You can pay into a Ponzi scheme. That doesn't mean you get your money back. There's a horrible lesson to be learned, which is don't trust the government with your t retirement. So isn't it to some degree, or I shouldn't say, and that's leading the witness, do you think it might be possible that to some degree it has to do with an unwillingness of the older population to look in the mirror and say, yeah, we, we really put our trust in the wrong people. We didn't uh, take into account... Um, the, the fact that the money was being stolen. Uh, we, we wanted all these benefits. We weren't willing to pay enough to, to um, make them solvent. And now we've got to, you know, take, take the bitter with the sweet and deal with it. I think the inability of people to have that conversation is kind of driving a lot of this stuff. Well, that's part of it. But I think there's also a sense that people can't quite believe that. And, and because they don't hear it said very often, they think it mightn't be true, you know. So if the, that thought interests people, there's money under the couch somewhere. Is that, yeah, is that the idea? Well, you know, it's a big. Oh, thing. we'll I find mean, a pot of gold. Well, you know, because we do take for granted that these things are there, that they're there for all kinds of people. And if you've worked all your life as a as a in this economy, and contributed for 35, 40, 45 years, you kind of take it for granted. I'm kind of in that situation myself. And you know, even though I'm I'm hearing entirely what you say and agree with you completely, Stefan. I, 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 there's a part of me that is naive. I need to be naive about this because it's such a horrific idea that actually they could have conned me for all those years, stolen all that money. Oh, no, they and have. Tell me, it's it's not an idea. That, I mean, Ireland is horribly in debt, right? And it's this yeah. terrible thing where throughout history, the mistakes of the elders are visited on the lives of the young, right? So you, you, you cock up uh, preventing Hitler from expanding into Czechoslovakia and, and Austria and the Rhineland. And, and then it's like, oh, sorry, uh, Chamberlain, who's never going to be drafted because he's too old, completely effed things up. So sorry, we now have to draft five million young men to go and fight and die. And, and it's now it's the same kind of thing. It's like, well, the mistakes of the elders trusting the government, not policing the government, not voting in people who said, because lots of people were saying, I've been talking about it for decades, there's no money in the retirement fund. And people just didn't want to have that conversation. So now the young have to pay. 
So now the young have to pay with demographic replacement. Okay, but what happens here, Stefan, is that there's a kind of a, a comity of the European political elite. They, they, they bolster one another in the knowledge of the truth. And so if these people had to run their countries individually and report to the people as, as the absolute rulers of their own nations, they probably would fall apart facing these truths. But because there are so many of them and because they are all kind of in this big club and because they have actually persuaded the media by and large across Europe, but certainly in Ireland and to a lesser extent in the United Kingdom and probably to a lesser extent in other countries, you know, different countries have different qualities of media. We have by far the worst in Europe. Possibly <laughs> I think if I have this conversation with anyone in any European country, I might hear the same thing. But you could be I don't right. think, well, they would be wrong, Stefano, because if you look at Italy, for example, which has been brought to its knees also in a different, slightly different way, but nevertheless brought to its knees, uh, they have, to some extent, a vibrant press. You know, they have different alternative magazines and different Catholic newspapers, not kind of just theological uh, newspapers, but Catholic newspapers. And they, they, there is a variety of, of perspectives available in a country like that. And probably in other countries, there is zero in Ireland, zero. I, I don't mean that there's very little, I mean there is none. And, and so th there is almost this sense of that the, the media are in it with the politicians. However that works, that's the way it is. Okay, and sorry, so, no, no, so, finish your thought. I'll hold on mine, sorry. So. So the thing is, the people don't really know for sure. They, people have a sense, you see, about a lot of this stuff. Well, if this were really true, it would be on the front page of the Irish Times every day because it it's one of the most important things you could possibly think about. That, that you know, the, in, a, in, a, in a context where you have a rapidly aging population, a, a demographic that's like, you know, really uh, going into the red in terms of people over 60, uh, over retirement age. Um, that that's such a crucial issue that it would have to be talked about. And the fact that it's not on the radio, it's not on TV, that must mean, ah, if whoever said that, that can't be what Stefan said. they must know about the national debt. Yeah, well, they do know about the national debt, but they don't actually know exactly what that means. You see, a lot of this time, it, it's like almost like bingo numbers. You know they don't I mean? know what it means? Well, they, mean, they know what it means. But you see, one of the things about Ireland is that it, it, it's, it is capable of disguising its reality. I mean, the nature of the Irish economy is very, very interesting and pretty unique, I would say. That we don't really have, a, we never had for a very long time, if ever, had a strong indigenous economy. Our economy is not, when you see figures presented for the Irish economy, they're not actually about the Irish economy. They're actually the corporate transnational economy in Ireland. So... Oh, that's the uh, Celtic Tiger thing, the lower taxes and got a lot of head offices. Yeah, okay, yeah. got it. And it's, it's the kind of, the, we, we live off the, 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 the pittances that come off the table. Now, you know, the, the, the payoff for this was supposed to be that we would get massive amounts of employment. Uh, and on paper, again, that appears to be the case. Um, but actually, if you look at the corporations themselves and look at this, the workforces, you find that actually most of their employees are bust, are taken, are flown in. You know, like a friend of mine is a businessman in, in, in a town that quite near me here. And uh, he's, he's at the counter every day. And uh, last week he was telling me a, a, a woman came in who works in Google and, and in Ireland, in Dublin. And, and he was, he's a pretty nosy guy. And he said to her, um, how many uh, people work in Google Ireland? And she said, well, about 7,000. And she, she was in HR in, in there. And, and, and he said, oh, mm, and, and how many of those are Irish? 
And she said, oh, five to eight <laughs> percent. So you see, this is now that means that the only benefit to the economy is that the certain amount of income tax is paid by these people. And it goes through the Irish. Exchequer. Well, yeah, money flows from the the, the um, far flung empire of Google. It flows to head office. Yeah. And then it gets spent yeah, exactly. in the local Irish economy. But it's not quite the but, same as uh, hiring Irish people. But a lot of the numbers going through the economy show up in some form or another and make the Irish economy look healthy. But if you drive around the country, you see in towns, you see the towns are falling apart. The infrastructure is being closed down beast by beast. I mean, we've been lo- another wave now of, you know, local post offices, like which are a crucial part of the infrastructure of the rural of, of rural Ireland or any rural, co- commun- any rural countryside. They're all being closed down. Uh, and so that that means that little parishes all over the country no longer have places where people can go and uh, get their pensions and get their few groceries and meet up, maybe have a chat, go off to the pub uh, for a couple of hours. That's now gone from like hundreds of communities in, in, in all over Ireland in the past couple of months. That's indicative of the reality of Ireland. Whereas you know, what's actually happening at, uh, in the immigration statistics is like some, it appears to be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, dystopia. It's a, it's a fantasy, a very dark fantasy, Ireland, because the two things don't fit together in any way, shape or form. Well, okay, uh, so here's the thing that drives me crazy. And uh, you've worked in the media, so you know the, uh, the habits of the prostitutes. But um, this is what drives me crazy, John. So... The left has this belief that you can take someone from Kenya or Somalia or Mozambique or or Zimbabwe and you can plop them in Ireland and relatively quickly they're going to be Irish, (laughs) you know. Now, not only does this fly in the face of, of the entire world's experience all throughout history, but in the newsrooms, if you are a right winger, let's say, or just not on the left, like let you're a libertarian or whatever it is, right? you put in your application, the odds of you getting hired once they Google you are zero. Mm. So they in the newsroom have countrymen that they've grown up side by side with. They speak the same language, same history, same culture, same educational system. And they say, they don't say, well, we'll just bring this right winger in or this libertarian in and we'll just change his mind. We'll just turn him into one of us. They, they no. won't even hire someone like that because they know that it's going to be hard for that person to change, right? Because there's some, there are some genetic bases to political beliefs. But regard, like by their own ideology, it should be far easier to change the mind of a right-winger who's just like you, like white and, and Irish and same history. You should just be able to bring that person into your newsroom and they're going to change because you've got this magic soil in your newsroom and they're going to change just... But they don't do that. They won't hire people who aren't like themselves because they say, well... They're not going to change. Why would we want? And it's like, but they somehow think that someone from Somalia is going to change a lot more than somebody with a different political opinion who grew up next door to them for 40 years. Yeah, well, something like that happened to me. You know, I went into the Irish Times in 1990 and and they spent 20 odd years trying to change me and and they failed. (laughs) It doesn't work, right? Doesn't doesn't work. Certainly not. I mean, having said that, I mean, I do think there's an important distinction to be made between the idea of one person coming, theoretic, one theoretical person coming to Ireland or from anywhere, from Pakistan, from Mozambique, whatever you say, and, and, and them fitting in in some way into the society. That's one question. That's an entirely different question to 10,000 of the same people coming to Ireland 
Because that creates an entirely different set of circumstances. Well, they all live together, they move together, and then they get surrounded by this moat of welfare yes. and subsidies and benefits to the point where they can quite comfortably, thank you very much, survive and flourish without ever even learning the local language. And, and furthermore, you know, they, to go back to a point we were talking about there a short time ago, the idea that, that you know, these people can hold up, immigrants can hold up a social welfare system for others is actually a myth because in general, the experience has shown all over the world that they take out more than they put in. So yeah, a lot of welfare, the they bring in their elderly relatives, so you end up with more old people and they have a lot of kids who aren't paying taxes and require a lot of social services and, and healthcare services as well. That's right, that's right. And, and uh, so that, you know, what we're doing is actually unsustainable. There are many, many objections to it, but it's actually economically unsustainable to begin with. And this is clear. But none uh, of it is sustainable. None, none of it is. Like even, even, like even if the demographics didn't change at all, it would still be completely unsustainable because the amount of debt and, and the population bulge that's going into retirement and so on. Uh, you, know, you know as well as I do the numbers that there were like 30 or 40 people working for every retired person when the system first came in. And then you're going yeah. to end up with, you know, two people working for every one person, three person working for every one person retired, completely unsustainable. And my, I guess, dark read on history, tell me what you think, is that when governments can't pay their debts, they tend to go to war. Because they don't yeah. want to have that conversation and the people are unwilling to have that conversation. It's so weird. I can't figure it out. People, historically, would rather send their children to war than have a conversation about not getting a pension. Because that is so often what happens when governments run out of uh, money. They just start a war. Now, it's really impossible to start a war in Europe now. Everyone's got nukes and, and all of this. And, and so now I have this concern that they're sort of importing conflict in, in, as a way of covering up the lack of uh, solvency in the finances. Well, that's very possible because, you know, there's something here as well. You know, Ireland, uh, you know, as you know, as well as I do, Stefan, that Ireland has had a very uh, dark and troubled history, history. And that has left an awful lot of people in Ireland with a strong sense of their nationhood, their history and their, you know, the debt they owe to those who died for Ireland and so on. That kind of patriotic idea. Now, on the you know, back of an envelope calculation that you might do on the basis of the figures that have been presented to us so far and what the government now projects. It is not implausible to, to conclude that the indigenous population of Ireland will be outnumbered in their own country within 20 to 30 years. Uh, and that calculation is on the basis of you know, the numbers of who are coming in and they're distorted for sure by all kinds of factors, the people, numbers that are being made citizens, which disguises the reality of who they are, and so on. But if you look at the, the, the um, uh, fertility rates, the relative fertility rates between the kind of, uh, the, the categories of people who are coming in and those internally, that present rate, I mean, replacement rate is 2.1. The current rate of uh, fertility rate in the Irish population is 1.8. Now, the, it's, from what I understand about this, that, you know, a, a fertility rate of 1.8 is, you know, you can sustain over the next 50 years, possibly 80% of your current population. And you can automate uh, and, and, you know, the, the idea that you need a constantly growing or even maintained population 
yes. a- absent other factors is, well, you know, it's, it's fine. I mean, you, you can just, yeah. more robots, you know, they're doing this in Japan. It doesn't necessarily mean the end of your civilization if your population well, declines a bit. I thought that was a big goal from the 60s environmentalist movement. Well, indeed. But, but there is a danger in that, just to, just to be clear, what happened, when that endangers population, apparently there is a tipping point, somewhere about 1.6, where that 80%, you know, disintegrates. And you're looking at perhaps having within 50 years, rather than 80% of your existing population, maybe a quarter to a third of your existing population. But that's, that's a complicated. Sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt. But in a free market, that's not how it would work. The way it works in a free market, and I know that free markets are still a bit of a distant fantasy to a lot of European countries, if not North American countries. But the way it would work is your generation, God bless you, going to get old, going to die. And what that means is that there's a huge glut of housing on the market, which means mm-hmm. that housing prices would collapse, right? And, yes. and uh, that means it's a whole lot cheaper to buy a house, which means that you can afford to have more children. So it's just one of these pendulums, you know, like uh, if you have a baby boom, it's followed by a baby bust, which is then followed okay. by a baby boom again. Fair enough. That's yes. But you do need to change the culture radically in order to achieve that. And I mean, remember this, Stefan, in the last six months, we introduced abortion into Ireland. And that's yes. going to be deeply shocking, deeply shocking uh, to those, yeah. uh, I guess, within and, and, and outside so that, Ireland if, as well. If you were talking about a multiplier on, on those figures, that's that's it. Uh, like and that's that's going to bring us perilously close to the 1.6 within a very short time indeed. So we're going now. At, meanwhile, the people who are coming in, I mean, their fertility rates are up or upwards of five. 5.2, 5.3, 5.5 is not unusual in the the kind of categories of people that are coming in, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, etc., etc. Well, the, uh, their so, fertility rate in, in um, many places in Africa is well north of five, and that's without yes. a welfare state. That's right. That's exactly right. And that sustains, in certain categories, that sustains. In some categories of, of uh, uh, immigrant, that wanes after one or two generations. In some, it doesn't, and particularly Muslims, it doesn't wane in Muslim categories as a rule, because they don't in any way integrate, and they're, they're actually, they're, uh, you know, a community within who, who follow their own culture and their own outlooks. Well, and there uh, is a category of uh, Islamic, I don't know, displacement, which is to do with migration and having lots of kids. It is part of a religious commandment to spread the faith. Yes. So, but you see... Like, this is where we pause and say, well, how come these conversations cannot be heard, cannot be had in Irish media? This is, this, there is nothing more important than this. Now, the only thing that would happen arising from what you and I are talking about here, if, if it gets to the notice of certain of my former colleagues, is they will fillet everything that we have said in, the, in this interview, in this discussion, and try to find one half sentence, <laughs> which they would then cut out, and they would put it up on Twitter, and that would become Stephen Molyneux or John Waters or both, whoever, whatever uh, they can make of it. And that's what journalism has been reduced to now in the face of these catastrophes. That, and that's why I don't want to be a journalist anymore. I have told my wife, you know, that if perchance, you know, my obituary uh, mentions anything about me having been a journalist, that she's drilling up and request a clarification or a correction for the next morning's paper. Because it's such a shameful profession now that really, I, I, I feel ashamed that I wasted 30 years of my life in this cesspit, really, 
that is not prepared to serve the people and do the only job that is required of journalism, to tell the people the truth and allow them to answer back to power. So it's well, a it used to be, of course, that journalists took risks. It used to be that they did deep investigative journalists. It used to be that they did sting operations. Now yeah. it seems that the large uh, job of journalists is to troll Twitter feeds of their enemies and rewrite government propaganda and pretend that it's news. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, and uh, so we, we have a real crisis. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's beyond really um, anything that I've ever seen or indeed anything I ever dreamt about in, in my country. Because for other reasons, you know, uh, we've had a number of events now in the last few years which really are of a piece with this. They're in some sense disconnected. We had a, a, what we call a marriage referendum and, and that was about gay marriage. But it wasn't just about gay marriage in the, in the American sense or in the the European sense, uh, it was actually about making gay marriage equivalent to, equal to uh, the marriage of a man and a woman. So now we have in our constitution the principle that two men or two women uh, as a couple, married couple are the same as a man and a woman who can, proc who can procreate uh, their own children. And that has created all kinds of implications and potentialities for the future uh, uh, capacity of our constitution to protect biological families and uh, the normative relationships arising out of that. So that's one thing. Then, of course, we had the referendum uh, last year on, on uh, uh, the Eighth Amendment, which was the protection of the right to life of the child, which was actually an illicit referendum uh, in the sense that it has never happened before in the world, anywhere. This, this is, I don't think, is generally understood outside of Ireland, that a people voted on the question of whether they were prepared to kill a section of their own number. No other country has had a referendum of that nature. They've had referendums maybe to do with certain technical aspects of, you know, I mean, in, like these questions are usually fudged. Abortion is always fudged, really. America, in, for example, in the Roe versus Wade, I mean, they, they, that was based on privacy, which was an evasion, a sidetrack. We confronted the core question. Do you want baby X to live or die? And we said, die. Now, that's what we did. And those referendums were, were not won, they were actually stolen by a corrupt media, a political establishment which refused to offer opposition of any kind to these proposals. And a, Wait, an sorry, establishment. let's break that down a little more. Corrupt media and the politicians, I just want to make sure I understand. Well, okay, let me, put, let me spell it out then. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, it, you know, a parliament is supposed to work on the basis that the government puts uh, and its, the, the, its backers put forward ideas for, for legislation. And the opposition is supposed to oppose that in order to test that legislation, to test whether it's of uh, sound quality, whether it's uh, well-based, well-founded and so on. That is not happening now with, in relation to any major issue in Irish life. Uh, in, all of, in those two referendums, and indeed in the previous one on so-called children's rights, all the parties took the same side. You ended up with three or four uh, independent uh, uh, representatives who opposed. That was it. And when I put this in a debate with the leader of the opposition during the marriage equality so-called referendum, I said, you, you have abdicated your responsibility uh, to oppose the government. He said, we don't oppose for the sake of opposing. Well, I said, well, I think you have to, because, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, if I'm your lawyer, Stefan, and we go into court and 
I hear the prosecution case and, and about what you're supposed to have done. And I stand up and I said, well, I'm, I'm representing Stefan here, but I've heard the case against him and I think it's irrefutable. So <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm not going to say Bye-bye. anymore. <laughs> you know, and that's what it amounts to, because that's the role of opposition in, 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 in democracy. Uh, so what, what it does for that is that it's left to meet people like me who are not in any sense, you know, I'm, I'm not even in any sense a professional anymore. I'm not in any sense in this for anything other than because I'm seeing my country being destroyed in front of my eyes. Uh, I'm doing this totally pro bono, as are quite a number of other people. Thank God a lot of people now are beginning to emerge and take their places, you know, just as they are in France and the Yellow Vests and in, in Italy and all over Europe, this is happening. Um, and I, you know, but it is shameful to watch uh, people who call themselves journalists you know, just waiting in the in the undergrowth to try and catch out somebody who will say something untoward or a slip of the tongue or, you know, a, a misstatement or, you know, having a conversation, which we used to be able to do, by the way, Stefan, you know, like we're having now or trying to have, although, you know, both of us, I bet you, are being careful because you have to be. But once upon a time, you know, you could have conversations in public where you were saying things for the first time and, you know, you hadn't said them before. You were trying them out. You were teasing things out. So I might say something to you and you would say, well, John, no, you're, you're a little bit off on that. That's wrong. Uh, you're misinformed or you no, you shouldn't. I wouldn't put it like that. And I'd say, oh, OK, yes, good point. Let me rephrase. That's no longer possible because they will snip out the first statement you made and that would become what you said. So the possibility of conversation in every sense is being closed in upon. And the result is that there is actually no democracy. You can't have a democracy if people are not able to talk. And you can see the effects of this all the time, I think, in the demeanor of people in the street. You know, like I've never before in my life as a journalist, when I was a journalist, you know, this was a very vibrant country for discussion and debate. And I used mm. to speak a lot around country. And, you know, people, you know, you'd make a speech and there would be people jumping up all over the room, like with sheets of paper, reading things out and going at you and demanding answers. and giving their own opinions and speeches and so on. Now, people are more inclined to kind of just politely clap if they do, if they look around the room first to see if it's okay. And, you know, you might get a polite question or two, but that's it. Because people are being terrified by a combination of corrupt media and the Twitter, you know, which I think Twitter is 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 demonic in my opinion, but that's just my, my own. I think it is a decivilizing instrument, which is actually imposing a grotesque censorship on modern society that will actually cause the, the death of that society. Well, I, I know what you mean. I have, uh, since I did my documentary on Poland, I'm somewhat throwing caution to the winds and recognizing the urgency of these issues and uh, mm-hmm. being as frank as, as I think it's possible to be. Sure. But uh, no, uh, it, is, uh, it is a huge challenge and this amazing, terrifying, horrible censorship that is occurring from the media, a lot of it comes from the media. Some of it comes from overzealous uh, hate speech laws and, and all this other kind of nonsense, which is just one of these hysterical subjective terms that people use to shut down potential debate. But this is one of the problems, of course, of when you have a multicultural, multiracial society, is that it becomes very hard to have frank discussions about racial issues. 
if you're white. But it becomes virtually impossible because, of course, if you point out anything, any problems, any difference, any crime rates, any difference in intelligence levels, any difference in religious beliefs, anything like that, boom, racist, 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 racist. And you are yeah. shut out of discussion. You are uh, an unperson. You are shunned. You are a leper, a pariah. And it's like, that's not, that's not a good advertisement for <laughs> multicultural societies, which is basically shut up about anything important. Like, how is that supposed to help societies do anything other than slide into chaos? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I formed the view quite a few years ago from going over and back to London. And, and you know, you know, this is interesting because, you know, when you're younger, the idea of this multiculturalism, when you don't have responsibility, <laughs> it seems attractive. You know, it's, it's only when you have children of your own or grandchildren and you look into their eyes and you see what's happened, you see the irresponsibility of politicians and their inability to actually care what, about the consequences of what they do, that you start to, to. So when you're young, you know, reggae music, man, you know, and all that stuff, and, and you go to London, you go to the Notting Hill Carnival, and that's a great day out. It's really, it seems to be a multicultural event, and it is in a certain sense. But when you go around, when I noticed a long time ago going around London when I spent quite a time there when my, my daughter was very young and she was over there, and I noticed that the, it, came, it came to me that the idea of coexistence that is at the core of uh, multiculturalism was achieved by the avoidance of eye contact. Huh. People were walking past each other, but nobody was looking into the other's eyes because there's a fear there all the time. Uh, the fear of the stranger is what it is, fundamentally. You know, this, because cultures work on all kinds of signals that are bred into people from the beginning of their lives. They're, they're there and you pick them up and you, from your parents and you understand, you read people. It's not even, it's a different language. All that is missing when you have masses of people coming in from outside. You can see it in Ireland now. There used to be all kinds of, kind of, I won't call them cultures as such, but there were aspects of culture that, you know, minor things maybe that you felt. You go into a shop and you didn't have enough change. You didn't have enough money to pay for something. You might be like 10 cents or 15 cents or 20 cents. Uh, and you'd be counting out short and you'd be counting out your money. And when the, the person behind the counter would say, oh, you're all right, just give me that. And take the, scoop the whole lot up and throw it in the tail, right? That doesn't happen anymore. Every, because the people who come in don't have a sense of proprietorship in relation to any aspect of Irish society. And if they're working in a bar or a shop, they do everything by the, by the letter. They can't not do that. So you've lost that kind of fluidity that belonged to Irish culture, which people came here for. That was part of the personality of Ireland, or the ability to make jokes with people. You know, American tourists or whoever, that, that the guy behind the reception in the hotel or the porter would make, you know, quite a, maybe even quite risque jokes, knowing the, where the lines were. Now it's very dangerous to make any kind of joke. And so all of the quality of the, the things, again, and this is an economic question as much as it is a cultural one, because this is a resource that we actually are offering the world for trade, tourism. It's now being diluted, because if you go into an Irish bar or an Irish uh, hotel, the chances are that you're being tend uh, served by people from abroad, not Irish people at all. Very rarely will you actually come across Irish people in those positions anymore. Uh, except that there's a particular policy on the part of a particular management of a particular hotel. Otherwise, so all that's been drained away from the, the, the everyday culture of Irish existence. Well, there's also a terrible 
slowing down of the world as it becomes more multicultural in the West. I'll just sort of... So, if you have a mono-ethnic society, like you have in Japan, or to a large degree in China, or, or South Korea, or other places, when it comes to hiring, you simply choose the best man or woman for the job. And yes. you don't have any issues with affirmative action, or having to meet quotas, or having to meet racial demographics, and worries about lawsuits, and anything. You simply hire the best person for the job. Now, the problem is, of course, when you start to get a multi-ethnic society, then some cultures are going to do well relative to other cultures. So if you look at Chinese, Japanese, South Koreans, and so on, they do very well in what are still somewhat white countries, right? They have higher per capita incomes in America, where there's a meritocracy, and it's because their IQ is generally higher than the white population, so they do very well. Where you have groups and populations where the IQ is generally lower than the white population, they do badly. And because we can't talk about any of these differences, it's all ascribed to white racism, and therefore, you have to hire more and more people who otherwise you may not hire. And what this does yeah. is it takes a little while to work its way through. But, you know, we've all had that experience. You call up about some technical issue and it's somebody with a heavy accent who doesn't quite follow what you're saying. And it's just everything kind of like people don't return calls very well. And everything just kind of gums up and slows down because the meritocracy, which is so essential to keep the economy humming and growing, is kind of getting gummed up by hiring criteria that aren't yeah. simply around competence and yeah. excellence. And, and that, that kind of uh, syndrome in those telephone calls is actually signaled in advance by the warning. This call is being monitored uh, or recorded <laughs> right. for training purposes. That's to tell you, you watch your lip, Sonny, you know, don't, don't get angry, uh, be nice, whatever else. So everything is being, you know, flattened out. Um, but you see, there's a very interesting dimension of all this as well. I mean, you know, uh, the the which is in the history of Ireland, and 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 this is something which we don't ever talk about very much in Ireland at all. It's never acknowledged um, because uh, because of actually what it is. I mean, Ireland is essentially a post-colonial country. Now, I know that's a very loaded term in modern context for all kinds of very good reason, but there is actually something to the idea that having had a colonial experience, um, such as we had for, for hundreds of years, uh, has a profound psychic effect on a people and psychological effect. Um, for example, it makes you tend to imitate the occupier. That, that's your sense of what civilization means. So you tend to be, try to be like that, that person, that, that model. Um, you, you tend towards self-hatred, towards self-denigration. Um, and the great theorists of this, um, th these ideas are to be found in the writings, to some extent, in the writings of Porrick Pierce, who was the leader of the 1916 Rising, which was the great revolution that led to the Irish freedom and independence. But there are, the, 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 some 50 years after that, there was a, 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 a psychiatrist from uh, the Caribbean, from Martinique, uh, called uh, Franz Fanon, who worked in Algeria during the Civil War. He was a black man and very smart guy, very, very smart guy. And he wrote two great books. One was called The Wretched of the Earth, and the other was Black Skin, White Mask. And it was about this condition that in, the, that in Africa, in, in Algeria, he observed, and he was a psychiatrist, so he did this clinically, observing the, 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 the effects of, 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 of this process in the, pop, in the people he treated. Um, now, when you read The Wretched of the Earth, and when I read it like 20-odd years ago, I was astonished that it actually might have been written about Ireland, the kind of conditions he's writing about, you know, that, that self-hatred, the, the tendency towards 
mimicry. You can see it like in the things I was talking about uh, a short time ago, you know, that when we go to bring in gay marriage, we just don't bring in gay marriage. We bring in the best gay marriage in the whole world. And then when we do abortion, we try to make it even more extreme than every other country's. And when we have laws for transgenders, which we are beginning working on now, I think, even as we speak, the same people are, are working on these. We bring them in so they're for under six, under 16s can actually get transgender without their permission of their parents and so on. So we have to push everything to the absolute extremes. And this is these are post-colonial tendencies, symptoms. And it's very interesting that we, almost uniquely, not entirely uniquely in Europe, there are other countries which had somewhat similar experiences. Then you could say that some of the Eastern Bloc countries had similar experiences as a result of their uh, having the presence of the Soviet Union bearing down on them. But it's very interesting that we therefore share certain experiences with the people who are coming in. Now, there's a lot of issues about this because it's very interesting. You know, this whole guilt thing, which is at the back of Europe's, uh, you know, capitulation to this uh, influx, this tsunami of uh, migration into it, uh, really is based in, in guilt, in a kind of a post-imperial guilt. And, you know, in theory, you would say, well, the Irish ought to have no reason to have any guilt about anything because we were on the other side of history. Like, we were, we were the hare rather than the hound, you know? And it's very interesting that in this context, we're actually behaving as if we were Germans or as if we were English or as if we were, that this is the responsibility. Well, that's because it's a, it's a white thing, right? There's, I mean, there is this fund fundamental question that is plaguing the world as a whole, which is why are some countries successful and some countries are not? Why are some cultures successful? Why are some races successful and some are not? And there are two answers, and one I'm battling for as manfully as I can. One answer is the leftist answer, which says that, that whites are uh, wealthier uh, and have freer countries and better countries, better economies. Why, why is that? Because we uh, invaded, we pillaged, we stole, we enslaved, we are the receivers of stolen goods. And that is the reason why Sub-Saharan Africa is, is doing badly, or other parts of Africa are doing badly. That's why the Middle East is doing badly, because we just went in and we stole everything. And, you know, if, if I'm a kid and I go steal some other kid's bike and the other kid comes and wants it back, is it really just for me to say, uh, no, you can't have it back, right? So if we are in receipt of stolen goods, then it is very tough to mount a case that we should keep everything that we have so unjustly pillaged from the innocent lambs of the world. Uh, that is one answer, and it is a false uh, answer. It is not only false, it is incredibly destructive. The general answer, uh, and this, uh, I think Garrett Jones wrote a whole book about this, I had him on the show, is that the success or failure of a country in the long run has to do with two things. One is the level of IQ within that country, and the second is, is there any kind of free market meritocracy that allows the great geniuses of productivity to rise to the top and create wealth for everyone else? And so um, it is not uh, that, that Europeans stole from everyone because the theft has been going on throughout history. Uh, the theft is, I mean, you, you had uh, um, Genghis Khan pillaging his way around uh, Asia and uh, he killed 10% of the world's population that did not make Mongolia, Singapore or, or Hong Kong. And none of that was true. You have in, in North America, you have the Comanches virtually genociding the Apaches. You had uh, cannibalism, you had slavery, you had rape as a weapon of war. Uh, the, the African tribes have been fighting from day one and they, they actually collected all the slaves that a few Europeans uh, sailed across to the New World. 
Slavery, pillaging, war, imperialism uh, has all occurred throughout history, but only one particular community and group managed to break through human limitations, break the Malthusian cycle, come up with an industrial revolution and rescue mankind from a life of pretty much eternal poverty, want, degradation, disease, and death. And that was white Western European Christians. And there's a lot that has to do with it, but the idea that everything is just stolen, that all the wealth that's in the West was just scattered around the world, uh, is, is absolutely, completely, and totally false. Uh, everybody was starving, everybody was broke. But this answer that whites stole everything is not only false, it means that whites can't protect their own countries because we feel that we're in possession of stolen goods. But most importantly, I think, most vividly and powerfully as it's gonna play out over the next few years, is that yes. if you say to a group of people, let's say blacks or, or, or people from the Middle East or people from India and so on, and you say to them, by God, those white people, they just came in and they raped and pillaged and stole and, and destroyed and, and they were imperialists and colonizers and so on. What mindset does that give people who were coming into the West and looking at white people? It's one thing to be a colonial power. It's another thing to say, that colonialist exploitation continues to this day. White people are the evil, privileged racists. Now, why don't you come into white countries? Uh, that is such a recipe for disaster. I don't think we'll ever know whether multiracial societies could work because the leftists are goading everyone with all of this racial hatred, well, against whites in general. How could this possibly work? Um, I go along with a lot of what you say there, Stefan, but not entirely. I mean, I think there, for me, there, there's, there are different questions that arise and 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 they take me to a different place in the sense that i think we actually know i think we come to the same conclusion in one sense and um, i would say that there is some truth in the idea that uh, uh, the poorer nations of the world were pillaged i mean ireland is a case in point i mean you know the the idea that for example that there is there was one best way of civilization and that it was the english way you know, I don't believe that that was true. I mean, you know, there's a line in a in a Tom Murphy play, and a great Irish playwright, Tom Murphy. You know, and he he's there's an English character, and there's the Irish man, and the Irish man at one point can say, you know, he says, "We were making little gold crosses while you were living in holes in the ground," and that is true of Ireland. Ireland was an ancient civilization, uh, which was wiped out. Its language, its culture, everything was wiped out by colonization, and. You know, people say, oh, I mean, because this is a big mentality in, in, in Dublin in particular, you know, that, uh, you know, they say, well, we'd have no decent buildings in Dublin only for the English. And <laughs> I'd say, well, we would have, but there would have been our buildings. Now, listen, mm -hmm. I promise not to interrupt your train of thought. I just want to say where we agree. I agree that colonialism transferred resources, but it did not create wealth as a whole. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Like you can go to I, you can go I, to I, South America. You can steal all the gold you want from the Aztecs and the Incans, and you can ship it all to Queen Isabella in Spain. But then what happened, as we know, is Spain entered into a four hundred year recession because the currency got destroyed because there sure. was an excess of gold. So you can go and take stuff from people, and you may end up with more stuff, but you're not generating wealth as a whole in the world. And 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 I think also that we would agree it would be that there was a lot of uh, gratuitous brutality 
associated with those projects of colonialism as well. And, 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 yes, uh, but I'm not sure it would have been, it was more than would have occurred otherwise. You know, when the British went to India and, and prevented the Sooty, right, the bride burning and so on, I'm not convinced that Western rule created additional violence because it did also suppress a lot of violence by uniting countries and, and having a judicial system and a, a system of, of, uh, of armies and so on that tended to suppress local conflicts. We'll never know because there's no control group, but I'm not sure okay. there, there was violence. But I'm very, not convinced that it's, look at Libya now without a government. It's, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the question is, you know, had history not happened the way it did, what would it be like now? And that's unanswerable, I guess, you yeah. know. And, and But where would you stand then, on, on, in, if, insofar as I've given a fair or a, a decent representation of Fanon's positions, that essentially that the, the colonized subject is sub is the victim becomes the victim of a host of complexes psychological psychic complexes which affect his capacity to live in the world thereafter and that these conditions can be handed on um, and that uh, there was a famous quote of Fanon's where he said that the first thing that the colonizer does when he arrives in a new territory is impress upon the consciousness of the native the idea that before the advent of colonialism there was nothing but savagery so in other words the, the culture was completely bereft of any value. And that was certainly done in Ireland. And you can see the traces of that in Ireland now in the attitudes of a lot of Irish people towards their own music, which is one of the great musics of the world, in my opinion. And, and it, that opinion is shared by lots of people across Europe. Italians love Irish music. They love it far more than the average Irish person. And Germans love it for years. So. Uh, there is a, some truth, and I think that book is, is an amazing book, Wretched of the Earth, and, and uh, it tells us a lot, I think, about this moment. But before you answer that, Stefan, I just want to go to the point that I would have ended up on, which is that, in a certain sense, I would, we would definitely converge, I think, on this point, that really, whether the morality of all of this is this or that, the facts are, we are where we are. You know, it's like that line of De Niro's in... in, in uh, the deer hunters, this is this, it's not something else. We're here now and we're facing a grave threat. We have responsibilities to our children, to our grandchildren, to posterity. If there's going to be fighting, we're going to have to stand up. It doesn't matter what's right or wrong. This idea that we can knock down statues and that we can then stand by and allow the throats of our children to be cut, it's not a runner in my mind. I don't care. Ultimately, I don't really care what the rights and wrongs are. We can talk about them all now. But ultimately, we, we will, the people of Europe will defend themselves in the end. The guilt will wear out, the cowardice will wear out, the political correctness will wear out, and they will stand up and fight like they have always done. Let us hope so. Uh, there is a worst outcome, which is complete capitulation, which I think is... Well, it's the worst conceivable outcome because it will be the end of everything. But I yes. would say, John, that we are all in the West occupied and colonized by hardcore leftists in positions of power. 
We are all subjugated. We are all controlled. We are all bullied. We are all programmed into self-hatred and capitulation and cowardice and fear yes. and, and, and resentment. And, and we are all occupied at the moment because That's there exactly is not right. one major outlet in the media or in the educational system that is triumphing and praising Western values, which are You're to right. some degree universal values. We are all colonized and subjugated by the hardcore leftists that are running the media and running the major educational institutions. And until we recognize that and begin pushing back against that, I don't see any way forward. 100%. You're 100% you're, you're right. This concept that, that has come to be called cultural Marxism, which is essentially the leveraging of victimhood. So it's actually imperialism via victimhood, colonialism using the vulnerable people or the, the people who have suffered in history. So what you basically do is you take these victims and you push them out in front of you as human shields and you conquer your own people and other peoples using those people as stooges in your, in your, in your uh, uh, imperial adventure. And you're dead right. It is the same thing. But it's, the result of it is an ironic reversal of the original model of colonialism, where it was that the English were in, in, in uh, uh, Kenya or, or the, the French were in Algeria. Now the Algerians are in France and the Kenyans are <laughs> well, in Well, yes, but of course, remember, it, you know as well as I do, it's essential to not confuse the government for the people. Most British people loathed and hated colonialism. They were taxed to support it. They were conscripted to support it. They, they died of scurvy on the high seas, starvation, sweat, malaria, tuberculosis, you name it. It was a disaster for the yes. English people as a whole. It is the British Agreed. government that wanted to paint the map red, and they did it often with the blood of the British citizens. So the idea that somehow the British won in colonialism or the Germans won or the Dutch won, I mean, it, it's not how right. it, things played out historically. The average person in England had far more in common with the subjugated serfs in Ireland than they did with their local British aristocracy who were doing oh. all the pillaging. Totally agreed. It's, it's very akin to the, the trick feminism uh, polls, implying that all men had all power for all time. <laughs> right. you know? I mean, how on earth would you organize the society where women got exempt from the draft and men got drafted en masse if you were a man who had anything to say about it? If yes, there was all yes. this white privilege, why would whites face becoming despised minorities in the countries their ancestors yes. built? This is a completely insane idea. Yes, and by the way, lest it be see, seen that I'm whitewashing the Irish history, Irish history of, of all traces of imperialism or, or colonialism. Uh, let me just add this footnote that actually, whereas in, in all of those contexts, all of those categories, military and, and political and so on, we were perhaps innocent. But actually, there is a case to be made that we did send our missionaries to these colonies and that in those colonies, they function to make it easier, you know, to put in a, a gracing aspect on the colonial projects. Uh, well, I'm, so, I'm of the opinion that a lot of the world could use a lot more Christianity. So, I, I'm, you know, well, if I it's going to be you or the local imam, uh, I'm pretty sure well, I know which side well, of the coin flip I, I would I'm like that to land that. on. But, but what I'm saying is that, you know, I mean, sometimes you have to kind of um, set out the full picture. This is a hugely complicated picture, as you, as you know. And we don't know exactly what we can't know what would have happened if certain other things didn't but, happen. OK, this I, is the I, thing that that also drives me crazy, which is, I don't know why it is that I am supposed to care about every piece of suffering that every other group has gone through, 
but nobody's supposed to care about the suffering that my ancestors went through. And we all know this, right? I mean, the yeah. British were invaded by the Muslims, which provoked the Crusades. They were dominated by the Roman uh, Empire. They were more than a million of them uh, were taken into slavery in, in the uh, Muslim countries, far more than were ever brought as, as blacks to, to North America or to, to America for sure. And, uh, you know, there was there was serfs, there was the Black Death, there was like a huge, there was two giant world wars, I mean, endless catastrophes, cold wars. And so this idea is like, well, I've really got to be concerned about what happened to the natives in Algeria or, but nobody's sitting there saying, boy, you know, you, you poor white people, yeah, you were pillaged and enslaved and sent to war and, and, and so terrible things uh, happened to you throughout history. It's such a one-way street and I'm really tired of it. Like yeah. people start complaining to me, it's like, you show me on the internet where you ever shown a shred of concern for the suffering that whites went through throughout history. And if they can't show me that, it's like, I don't care about the suffering of your ancestors because you don't care about the suffering of mine. Well, indeed. And, and I mean, something you see very strongly, in, and it's very interesting now, you, you can see traces of this, like, for example, in the whole Brexit debate, uh, a trope in the Irish commentary on that in the media here is, you know, that attacking the, the, the leavers as being kind of remnants of uh, British imperialism, you know, the, the English imperialism, rather, that they, it's a hankering after the empire and so on, like, which, which is about as daft an idea as you could possibly uh, come up with. But it, this is ironically and interestingly always comes from people who, in the context of Ireland's relationship with England, never want to discuss the question of English imperialism at all. <laughs> it didn't happen. You know, that's, that's just Irish victimology. And, you know, they have this phrase they use, MOPE, M-O-P-E, uh, the most oppressed people ever, ever. And that's the kind of, to, to, to dismiss I any attempt. I should laugh, but that's to, a good acronym. Yeah, to, to, that's, that's used to, 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 to put down any attempt to raise the true history. And I mean, I love English people. I, I, I lo you know, this is, we come to the whole question of racism here in a certain way. I love English people and I love England. And, and, and in a certain sense, I would say imaginatively, I now regard London as my capital in a weird kind of way. I have for a very long time, because if you want to go and get involved in theatre or in literature, that's where you have to go ultimately uh, to, to you know, be part of a, of a broader culture and a more interesting culture, frankly, than Ireland has now become in these conditions that we're talking about, this left liberal kind of craziness that has descended in the last couple of decades. Um, so, you know, this is how complicated it is. You know, these things are hugely complicated. And, and <clears throat> you know, at any given moment, you know, there are so many different uh, variables that, you know, sometimes we make bad calls. I, I, for example, there was a referendum here in, in 2004, uh, which was about the question. Now, this was before this. This was literally on the cusp of all this beginning, because there, we now have in Ireland something like 18 uh, percent non-nationals. That's more than they have in the United Kingdom. After 60 years, we have after what, 14 years, something like that, 15 years. So in this referendum, which is at the beginning of this, and, and we were all kind of, I was certainly naive. Um, the government uh, proposed a referendum uh, to deal with a question that they saw as problematic, which was that a, quite a number, significant number, not vast numbers, but a significant number of African women uh, in particular were coming to Dublin. Uh, and having their babies in, in Irish hospitals because the law at the time allowed their babies to become citizens of Ireland by virtue of being born here and allowed their parents to join them here then uh, and to look after them. Which you know. Now, I actually opposed that amendment. I, I, I 
thought that it was, uh, I won't say that I thought it was racist. Uh, that wasn't the point. I thought it was inhumane in a certain way. That if you leave your borders open to the extent that anybody is able to get in and you don't police your borders adequately, and then they come in, I don't think you should you know, point a finger at them and blame them and say, now you're not entitled to this particular benefit that has, everybody else has had. Something like that was my, and there were other aspects. Now, I didn't, if I had known what was coming down the track, uh, I possibly might have taken a different view of that. And in fact, I've been, uh, you know, having those discussions with people who were on the other side of that battle. And it's very interesting that at that time, 14 years ago, the political establishment, the government, and everybody around them was of the same mind that basically we should keep our bar borders relatively closed. Now well, and there's never the right been a back. referendum on immigration. Well, that was the nearest one we had. Uh, <laughs> they're, and they're now thinking of actually having one, I think, to reverse that again. Now, that one was passed by seven. I thought, you know, I was on the wrong side of that referendum in the sense I was on the losing side. It was passed by 79% to 21%, something like that. So Whenever people are asked oh. fundamental immigration questions, they always want little to no immigration. Uh, yes. This is true in America, in, in Canada here, Canadians are as a whole desperate to reduce the massive immigration that is occurring because everybody understands, particularly people from the third world, the statistics are very clear. Uh, if you're black, uh, if you're from India or other places, the odds of you supporting things like free speech, the odds of you uh, supporting separation of church and state, the odds of you supporting the free market are all very, very, very low. And yes. this is, well, you know, they say, well, you can't treat people who uh, as different. It's like, well, if they stopped acting differently, that would be a whole lot easier now, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, the reason I tell that story is that 79 percent, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of the population. And, and, and what I'm kind of thinking is that, you know, given the kind of number of people who are now calling me a racist because I raised these questions at all, there must be a number, at least, of those voters who voted against that, in favor of that amendment who uh, now call me a racist. <laughs> and I was on the other side of that reference. It, it so is one crazy. of these, um, uh, it's one of these push button conversation detonators when people can't handle information, they just jump out. It's like, like these emergency uh, blowout things in Top Gun movies, you know, like eject buttons. Yes. Just, unfortunately, it's a way of shutting down conversation. And when you shut down conversation, uh, you shut down civilization because civilization is nothing but yeah. our desire and to I have think conversations. Also, I also think of it, Stefan, as a kind of a, I used to use this as a kind of a metaphor, you know, that, that people were being hypnotized, you know. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually a hypnotherapist, and he said, you know, we had a dinner conversation about these things in the recent referendums and the use of these words like homophobic and, and racist and so on. And, and I was saying it's a little bit like a, the way that, you know, a hypnotist would, you know, particularly the entertainment type hypnotists would give different words to different subjects and, and these words would trigger them into doing crazy things like turning into chickens and, and searching for leprechauns and so on. And he said, you know, that's not a metaphor. That's actually what happens. Yeah, people are programmed with emotional responses to particular facts yeah. and uh, it, it is terrible uh, when I think of the unbelievable suffering of, of the West from prehistoric times through ancient Greece, uh, ancient Rome, and, and so on, when I think of the amount of suffering that it took to build the basic building blocks of human, civil, human civilization, and Western civilization, and how extraordinarily rapidly, in, in a matter of a few decades, it could all 
vanish. Uh, it is really astonishing. It is like watching uh, a sandcastle that people spent uh, uh, all day building. Uh, and either the bully or the elements just come along and smash it right down. And we really have to have conversations about this. Uh, we don't have to go to war, but we do have to engage in some pretty intense verbal sparring. Uh, that's yes, really well, the best hope we have. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I guess when we get old and weak and tired, there comes a time when we're ready to die. You know, that, that you hear about that. It hasn't quite happened to me yet, but it, it, you hear that, 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 you know, I'm ready to go now type of thing. And it's almost as if our society, our civilization, is at that moment when it's saying, oh, we've had a good innings. Let's just slip away. Let's go gentle into that good night. That's Douglas Murray's argument, right? The strange death of Europe. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I do not want to go gently into that good night. And uh, you have children. I have a child. And um, I have a child, yes. Yes. So um, let's close it off here. I really, really appreciate the conversation. And I hope that we can stimulate more people into having honest discussions. There's no need to sure. explode into questions of racism and phobias and so on. Just look at the data. Look at the data. And it's very easy to figure out which way Western countries are going and what the outcome is going to be. It's not complicated. You can look at the map of the uh, election of Donald Trump and you can say, OK, well, if only people of color voted, if only women voted, if only white males voted. And the map is entirely different. Uh, so it's really not that hard to figure out. I hope we can have these honest conversations. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope we can do it again. Likewise, Stefan. Thank you very much.